0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan,
1: Ryan, and Peter. Episode 203, recorded for March 8th, 2023. From vaporware to visual apps, AWS App Composer finally, generally available. Yay. Hey, Peter, or sorry, no, Peter. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Ryan. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Justin. I'm back I'm back you guys did a good job last week I listened to the show uh, nicely done thank you you've even uh, even stumbled through my show notes which I know has been a complaint in the past that when I read the show notes it's fine but when you try to read my show notes it's a bit of a difficult problem <laughs> so because I also don't actually read everything I put in my show notes I just kind of yeah. use it as a guide but you find out the hard way so you guys did uh, you guys did fine
0: yeah, <laughs> but, this is, there's a lesson learned there for for uh, PowerPoint presentations and things mm-hmm. But uh, yeah,
1: so overall it was good. I uh, it got published, and uh, hopefully people listen to it. But uh, I uh, I was a little bit disappointed. You guys skipped the migration journey for that episode because that's the this is the one I don't want to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> I was like oh, uh-huh. those, those yeah. punks. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: we we kind of had a time crunch in the end, but honestly, we didn't want to talk about it either. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, well, then
1: uh, you look forward to that, listeners. You look forward to that at the end of the show. So, all right, let's get to it. Uh, We got a bunch of stuff to get to. So, uh, AWS has announced that they are working on a new region in Malaysia. This will allow all Malaysian customers, of course, to host their data locally. We have three new AZs uh, in the region, bringing the total up to 99 when it comes online. Although they, they don't mention when it'll be online, but probably like end of 2024, beginning of 2025 is my guess. Uh, and Amazon is apparently committed to spending over $6 billion in Malaysia by 2037. So uh, yeah, if you are in that part of the world uh, and you need AWS, uh, you will soon be able to get it. Maybe they can use it to help find that plane that's still
0: missing. <laughs> it's interesting, for for, for once I actually went into some detail about the customers in the area and why they're really in that area. It, usually it's kind of, we're opening a new region. Uh, there you go.
1: Actually, Amazon's always good about that. They you know They do... Where G- GCP and Azure don't mention any customers when they do this, but uh, Amazon's always actually been pretty good about giving you kind of an idea of some of the customers um, who are going to be there. And, and you know, part of the thing is, I imagine there's a, a sunk cost uh, or floor to what you need to have in revenue in a region. <laughs> and so I suspect that they had to go figure out who would move their workloads to their new region if they were to build one. Uh, versus Google and Oracle, who are just like, just build it and they will come. Uh, Amazon's only building it because they're already there.
2: <laughs> so yeah, or or they're just not advertising the same the level of effort. Because I can't imagine that the amount of investment it takes to to build out something like that with all the not only just you know the the compute and all that stuff, but then all the infrastructure
0: to to maintain it. And yep, it's a big deal, I'm sure. There's not a huge population in Malaysia. I think it's like 30 million or just over 30 million, but it looks like all the customers or most of the customers are finance and and government and education and sort of of core infrastructure type things, which makes sense for, I guess, a a fairly still developing nation economically wise.
1: Yeah. Well, the application composer, which was announced at reInvent, is now generally available. App Composer is a visual builder for you to compose and configure serverless applications from AWS services backed by deployment-ready infrastructure as code or infrastructure as code. I'd like to point out that they said visual builder for you to compose and do not use the word no-code or low-code because uh, clearly it isn't to the show and they know yeah. that we don't like it. <laughs> and so they've, they've artfully removed that from the press release.
2: Uh,
1: with two days, of uh, general availability of it, the, they're also having several new features, including the ability to connect an Amazon API gateway directly to Amazon SQS without routing through Lambda functions. And a new change inspector capability, which provides a visual diff of template changes made when you connect two resources on the canvas, which is the pretty picture you draw to connect your things together in a low code way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, i actually going to play with this for the next feature we'll talk about. But uh, I was kind of excited to go. I'm going to play with it the next couple of weeks. It's my on my list.
0: I like that it's not branded as no code though, because it, it really is no code. It is just hooking together different different services, and there may be data transformations, which is a configuration and it may be pipelines between different places, and that's a configuration. There isn't there isn't really code involved in this. Yeah I, yeah, I agree.
2: Yeah, hopefully it's just maturity in that space, right? Like it's, it's not a buzzword, it's not the thing, you know, it's not a WYSIWYG workflow type thing that requires a whole bunch, you know, has a whole bunch of rough edges and makes it really difficult to implement. So I like it. Yeah, I
1: agree. Well, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to using it on this new capability, which is that you can now subscribe to AWS Daily Feature Updates via Amazon SNS Topic, uh, which, thank goodness, like I've asked for this for years. Uh, subscribing to the SNS Topic will send you a normal email formatted uh, daily message that includes anything they announced or updated in the last day. And then they give you a JSON representation of all that data as well, so you can parse it. Uh, those then link, of course, to the blog posts, uh, as well as to the larger news blog posts posted like Jeff Barr, etc., Uh, And ultimately, all I have to say is um, I have subscribed to this. It's very noisy. Uh, Please don't unsubscribe from the podcast and subscribe (laughs) to this instead because you will be inundated with emails. Uh, But uh, I look forward to using this to inject those stories into our show notes so then I can then edit them more effectively there. Not have to do a copy-paste operation I do right now. Uh, Ryan
2: promised me two years ago when
1: I added him to the podcast that he hasn't delivered, but you <laughs> know, not, not bitter at all. <laughs> no,
2: no. Uh, what's funny is I, I did the same thing when I saw the application composer. I'm like, oh, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the two of us will will try and application composer
1: for this use case yeah. sometime in the next two weeks probably. But, uh, probably likely be neither of us. To There's yeah, <laughs> so much to do, <laughs> but uh, we at least
0: have a dream. Yeah. Is it better than having an email sent to every one of 300 Amazon accounts every time there's a product release? Oh, I think yes. probably it is. Yes, it's yes, <laughs> yes, much it better.
2: Is. It is better yes. because I can filter
0: that, but... Much easier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I can see a whole bunch of use cases for this. I mean, you could proactively go out and enable services or disable services or... Do all kinds of interesting things. There's mm-hmm. always been a criticism about around you know, managed read managed read only policies mm-hmm. where they add a new service or and any managed policies where a new service gets added, and all of a sudden you've got admin rights over something that you didn't even know existed yesterday. Mm-hmm. So this this would be kind of good. If if the yeah. if there's enough information in the in the payloads at least to mm-hmm. go off and sort of proactively either alert someone in security or or in the CCOE or something. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so like for the rule updates and like that, they do get into some more of the the details in the at least what I've seen in the last few I've seen this week. But um, you know, it, it's just nice that they put it into JSON format because you know that there's a standardized schema format behind any blog. <laughs> and so, you know, like the way that I do show notes is I copy the URL and then I copy the title of the show and I update the URL in the Google Doc to be the URL name. You know, it's just like there's a three-step process, but like I'm like always known, it's, it's just JSON. But then the problem with automating it that Ryan and I quickly discovered when we tried to do it, is that you have to then parse the you have to parse the website to or the RSS feed to then get it into a format that isn't XML because that's the problem with RSS. It's all XML. Who wants to deal with that noise? Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> you know, you then had to you know, work it through this process. And so either scraping it or working through the XML parser to then convert it to a JSON object to actually do anything with it. Uh, became very complicated very quickly. And then, of course, the Amazon articles in general are not consistent in how they're designed or named or anything else. And so you ran into all these kind of problems that uh, were just kind of awful. And if you've ever seen Corey Quinn, he's got a whole workflow for how he does this newsletter that is basically dealing with the same problem. And I don't want to repeat what Corey built because it gives me a headache every time I
2: see it. We post about it if Twitter. I was younger and had, you know, more attention span, I think maybe, but yeah, because it, it's impressive, but it's, it's a lot. And then you have to factor in the complexity and the maintenance of that over time.
1: Yeah. Well, and then, you, then you realize, you know, I was at a company once and they had an XML to JSON conversion thing they bought from Oracle as the only feature. And I always thought, well, that's ridiculous the amount of, you know, spending a lot of money for this basic feature. And now having tried to do it, I'm like, oh, I see why you would like this feature. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to me.
0: Yeah yeah they are not compatible
2: <laughs> yeah they are not It was the consistency that it would killed me because I, I you know like and that's really I don't even know if the tool would provide
0: that ability yeah yeah as, as somebody who's built probably just like hundreds of other people did things like automated email responses to ACM notifications and things mm-hmm. having that having the format of the email change was such a pain and mm-hmm. so yeah having a, having a fixed schema for something great, very nice so, yeah.
1: All right, let's move to GCP. Uh, they are apparently launching several new capabilities to Spanner's regional and multi-regional capabilities. Uh, the first one is the configurable read-only replicas that lets you add read-only replicas to any regional or multi-regional Spanner instance to deliver low-latency reads to clients in any geography. Apparently, you couldn't just add these before. It's hmm. Surprising. Yeah. Spanner zero down. Well, not really. I know Google now. Uh, spanner zero downtime instance move service gives you the freedom to move your production Spanner instances from any configuration to any other on the fly. With zero downtime... Whether it's regional, multi-regional, or custom configuration with the configurable read-only replicas, and then they're also dropping the list prices of their of their nine replica global multi-regional configuration, uh, nam eur dash Asia one and Asia three to make them even more affordable for global workloads.
2: I think that's one of the surprises when you get into GCP, um, I, especially coming from AWS where everything's you know region isolated like a lot of the GCP differential is that global offering of things like Spanner and and the network. And, and it's interesting to me how they, they kind of, it's very specialized in in certain things. Like you can, you can do a global network between these regions, you know, type of things. And it's it's those rough edges that you get, that you only really find out through implementation. That's really the, the sticking point. And so these features, you know, that clearly they're listening to their customers and, this has probably been really painful for a lot of those a lot of those
1: customers. So, good. How's that for Google this week? Not much going on there. Wow. But Azure is bringing the renaissance back
0: in a big way. Cue the, uh, cue the music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like it's a jaunty theme here. Yeah, jaunty theme.
1: <laughs> Announcing a renaissance of computer vision with AI with Microsoft's Florence Foundation model. Uh, Apparently, this was trained with billions of text images, pairs, and integrated as cost-effective production-ready computer vision service in the Azure Cognitive Service for Vision. Apparently, this will allow developers to create cutting-edge, market-ready, responsible computer vision applications across various industries. Customers can now seamlessly digitize, analyze, and connect their data to natural language interactions, unlocking power insights from their image and video content to support accessibility, drive acquisition through SEO, protect users from harmful content, and enhance security. Uh, There Leveraging this new Vision AI service in Microsoft 365 right now and things like Teams, PowerPoint, Outlook, Word, Designer, and OneDrive. Out-of-the-box features include dense captions, image retrieval, background removal, model customization, and video summarization, all for you. Uh, and all I can think of is uh, the startup uh, TV show, Silicon Valley, uh, where they had not hot dog <laughs> as a as a capability of machine learning vision, uh, has now been
0: resurped with the new Florence Foundation model. <laughs> I think this is great for accessibility. I have a friend who is legally blind and talking to her about her experience of using the web, which she has to do for a job, is, um, is horrendous. Like even even now, what, almost 30 years post you know, the web being a thing, images aren't captioned, things aren't captioned, things aren't accessible. And so even, even just something as simple as describing an image that's on a page, which could be critical to you know, the context of an article that they're reading or something, is, is super useful.
1: And then the last Azure story for the week, Azure WAF Guided Investigation Notebooks, just rolls up the tongues. Uh, is now using Micro Sentinel for automated false positive tuning. Uh, you guides you uh, The notebook guides you through the investigative experience to understand the Azure WAF incidents in Micro Sentinel identify false positives that require investigation, and create Azure WAF exclusions.
2: It's one of those stories that I think I really only understand the details by actually walking through you know, uh, an example or maybe a guided lab. Like there's, I, 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 you know, I've worked with WAF and, and I, I kind of know the things that they're talking about, but like the, the the notebook and the guided investigation experience. I'm like, I don't, what, this is either going to be like, you know, read the docs or, or, or I don't know, really like, it's
0: weird. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess it just gives gives a person in in the case that a, a transaction was was denied by the wife that shouldn't have been, it gives a person the opportunity to investigate the entire flow, and figure out why the wife denied something that perhaps shouldn't have been. And the, all I can think now is that Microsoft's kind of crowdsourcing this this work so that they can train an AI model to do that in the future. Mm. Because that's <laughs> is clearly that, is that
1: now the ulterior motive of all Azure things now. Well, they're yeah, just using that to train a model.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, it's gone from stoplights and buses to... WAF yes. laugh events. <laughs> uh,
1: they are actually in the article uh, for Ryan's purpose. Uh, mm-hmm. There is quite a few walkthroughs of how you would use the notebook to basically do these different tasks. So they go, they go through the use case of understanding the attack landscape when there's a true positive issue to understanding when it's a false positive and some of the persona involved in some of these processes and how you might use it. So there is some actionable stuff in the, in the article uh, for if you really want to know. But uh, I to not include those in the show notes because it would take us forever to walk through them.
2: I guess it's. I mean, my confusion really is like you know, like you you have a you know an exclusion which is logged in your WAF, and you have the policy that excluded that action, which makes sense, right? I, I, it's the next step where they're providing this the notebook, um, you know, sort of, and I'm maybe it's called notebook because it's similar to like sort of data science, machine learning type stuff, but I wasn't quite sure what that really. Did, even after reading the uh, reading through the article but mm. give it a shot go by this
0: I think if I follow step-by-step instructions maybe I'll understand more yeah yeah I think it's a sort of security data blunking place yeah. just as Jupyter mm-hmm. Notebooks are.
1: it's like, like an is. XDR type um, you know exercise in lab where they you walk through the log hunting and threat hunting and how you do those different things and uh, it, which was interesting the first time I did it because I was like, oh, I now understand what they mean by threat hunting because <laughs> it's not really threat hunting. I mean, it is, but it's yeah. not how what not how you initially may react to the words threat and hunting put together yeah. in the same sentence. Uh, but it uh, it is interesting when you do those labs and understand what they're actually doing, and it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, I blame Hollywood I see, movies. It's part it's part of the security side of like that's the security part that I enjoy and would like to do and be fun and I should be a CISO. and then. I remember all of the third-party risk and compliance and GRC side of security and I lose interest again. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup at the juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. foghorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the Cloud Pods sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice.
1: All right, well, we're, we're at the Cloud Journey series, and our topic this week is migration techniques, <laughs> uh, which apparently you guys were not thrilled about last week because you didn't I, talk are about it. Are, are you
0: breaking up a bit? Breaking <laughs> <I'm, laughs> up a bit, huh? I think
2: have lost the connection. Yeah. <laughs> Three grizzled veterans with jaded perspectives Dooms. on yes. workloads. Talk about migration. There's only
1: one correct answer in this list of ways to do it, but uh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, uh. see which one you think we think is the right way. <laughs> yeah.
1: Which I'm way sure do you think we like the best? Um so yeah, so last week we talked about about the six R thing. well, two weeks ago. We talked about the six R's a little bit and you know how you think about from an application-by-application application perspective, how you migrate them, you know, through the different process. Either you replace it with a SaaS product, or you migrate it, or you transform, lift and shift, or you transform and shift, uh, or you lift and transform. All these different ways you can kind of go through the process. But we didn't really talk about the underpinning mechanisms that actually exist inside of those type of things. And so there's really three. Uh, hybrid migration, uh, cloud-native migration, and a VMware migration. Uh, and so these are you know, really capabilities that you could leverage to either accelerate or hinder your entire migration strategy. <laughs> so do choose wisely as you go through this process. Uh, but to kind of give you a brief understanding of each of them, so hybrid migration is typically where you, you're you going to keep some level of data gravity typically in your on-premise data center or in your co-location facility. Think like, maybe my database is still going to live there or maybe I'm going to have... Uh, you know, my legacy monolithic application that lives in that hybrid data center. Uh, and then all of my net new things, my new microservices, my new API gateways, all my new magic excitement thing, will all be built cloud native. It'll live inside the cloud and it'll connect through an interconnect of some kind back to my monolith. Uh, and I'll use that technique to basically slowly strangle the monolith and replace all the functionality over time. And, you know, my migration will take five to seven years as you go through a major transformation. Um, but it gets you, you know, it, it's a lower risk, uh, gets you to the cloud, you know, at least with new stuff faster, but doesn't typically solve some of your legacy challenges. The next one is a, a pure cloud native migration. This is, hey, I'm going to rewrite all of my deployment code, all of my automation. I'm going to do it in the cloud way. I'm going to take advantage of managed services. I'm going to do, uh, you know, all that work and I'm going to move the databases. I'm going to move the data gravity to the cloud and really take advantage of those managed services to really get to you know, the the secret sauce of migration, which is I want to be cheaper, faster, more innovative. And that's what you get through the cloud native migration path. And then the last one is VMware migration, which is how you take your tech debt and you just physically move it to the cloud by doing a vMotion from your on-premise data center uh, and to, uh, to the cloud provider. Now, that also can be through many other tools that the cloud providers provide as well. I just like to call it the VMware way because it's what people understand in the IT world. But this is also, there's, all kinds of migration utilities from all of the cloud providers as well as numerous third parties that you can buy to basically take your existing image on-premise and move it to the cloud and then spin it up either on a native instance or inside of a VMware container while garden that you have to maintain. Um, so those are really your three your three main ways. And I miss anything on those three that I should have pointed out, you two?
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's all a journey. It's not, it's not just you choose this one thing and that's what you're stuck with forever. So, I mean, even in the case of VM migrations, I think if if you're looking at having to sign a, a three or five year lease for some space in the data center, then if a VM migration gets you out of the door in two months and you transform from there, then then that may be what you have to do economically. If you if you have if you have if you have a luxury, then then the maybe Oh yeah.
1: That. I mean this is just the migration portion for sure. I mean there's I mean, there's always the question after the migration what you do. I mean this is just the how do I get there <laughs> part of the question. But yeah I agree with you. There's always the part after the migration of like, okay, now that I've move my VMware world to VMware world on top of AWS or GCP, how do I now get out of that walled garden? Because you're not going to get any of the benefits of cloud living in the walled garden. <laughs> uh, or you're going to have to do a VPC peering to connect all the managed services and other cloud native things you want. Um, but yeah, you, you always have to kind of figure out that next step. But really, this is about the purely about the migration piece of it, I think, um, and, and which of those three techniques you kind of take through the process. Um, you know, I, I think... Amazon is very firmly in the camp of uh, cloud native is the way to go. (laughs) Like, you should redo all your applications and you should go through that process. Uh, Whereas, I think hybrid came popular and what everyone wanted. And that's what you saw Azure and GCP kind of embrace is like, you don't have to move your whole workload. You can take advantage where it makes sense. And that then leads you into the multi cloud story of like, then you can use the right cloud for the right workload and not cut us out the door when you sign a deal with AWS. Um, and so I think those are options. And then, of course, VMware prefers you to do the third one because they get to continue to maintain revenue uh, on you <laughs> as you go through that process.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's it's it's funny because they, you know you come later to the game, like Google and Azure did, right? You get to sort of capitalize on that. And so, like, because that strategy of of you know like hybrid really is you know backed by the the Anthos you know sort of strategy and product, right? It's like, oh well if you're containerized, you can, you can sort of do, you can do this. And Amazon has the outposts and the way to do similar type things. But the reality is that the level of effort and transformation still has to happen there. It's just where the workload actually is physically located. That's different. Um, And so it's, it's sort of, there's pros and cons of, of all these things. But I think my biggest gripe is just like at a certain point, when do we not call that a migration? When do we, you know, start looking at these things, not as one thing, and you know, like a, a a hybrid migration isn't a migration if you're strangling your on-prem product or you know replacing it over time. It's it's your software roadmap. Like this is the functionality we can get in this hosted place, and we can get other functionality in this other hosted place. And this is this is our feature delivery over the next several years. It's no longer a cloud migration, and that's. And I think that that's you know these migration projects end up getting sort of pigeonholed over time into things that they're not like with a finite end because of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about the finance aspect of a migration, for instance, you know, it's going to take, you know, a hybrid migration, it's going to take five or seven years. That is going to really hurt the economics, and the, the health of your business from a wall street perspective. But if you have a technology and innovation product roadmap, that makes a lot more sense, you know, as you, you can grow that over time and you can, you can change the sort of, um, the story there and, and make an argument for, you know, the investments you're making in certain areas. And I just think that, you know, it's using the right terms for, for the projects that is, is important to, to sort of maintain that narrative.
0: You're absolutely right. I think those terms have been chosen with a very Infrastructure looking um, eye in a way. We're mm-hmm. we moving this infrastructure. We're we moving this infrastructure, but doing a bit of transformation. Uh, in the past, maybe maybe the cloud eighty one isn't isn't focused on infrastructure because it does encourage managed services, and those are things that we would like to. Well, we'd like to think that that those things will be adopted by you know product engineering rather than being bolt ons at, at deployment time by SRE teams or release teams. Often, that's still not the case, though. I think in my ideal world, I've worked with so many legacy apps that have been around for 20-plus years. I, I really wonder why, why goes the effort of this incremental, painful, slow transformation when you know your product at this point, you know your customers. I, you have better tooling now than you did 20 years ago. You know, We're not talking about dot, the original dot .NET. We have amazing tools, amazing SDKs. Rewrite everything. Just spin up some, some, uh, some big-ass project. And just rewrite your your, your uh, product to be cloud native from the ground up. That's that's that would be my ideal.
1: Yeah, I think um, you know, kind of going to Ryan's point, a little bit what you were saying too. But you know, hybrid is not a; it shouldn't be seen as an evil thing. <laughs> I, I think because again, like you can move the legacy monolith, but what's the value of moving the monolith to the cloud if you're just going to strangle it? and turn it into APIs and microservices. And and especially if there's no net new revenue for that investment, you're spending more money uh, to get to the cloud to then basically spend more money and not get the benefits until you finish the strangling. So if you can afford to continue to invest in your data center, it's not shutting down. <laughs> it makes sense to potentially leave it on-prem and then create new revenue opportunities with cloud that are cloud-native in their format up front take advantage of those things and then you get the benefit of the cloud without having to make the huge bubble cost investment and that does de-risk some of that that story and i think that's, that's probably the biggest mistake i see people make in migration as they they go down this path of i have to move everything to the cloud because i'm not successful till the migration is completed um, and reality is like what are you really trying to get out of your migration for the business like what are you you're really just trying to not buy hardware anymore <laughs> you know you can get your hardware on-premise to last five years, and if you think your transformation to a cloud-native, you know, monolithic to microservices thing is seven years, that's not that much hardware you to buy, <laughs> and it makes sense to keep it on-prem and then leave it there. And you know, even in, in current days, like I talk about, you know, is it make sense to move SQL Server to cloud, <laughs> or does it make sense to create a data pop and leave it in my data center and make that a really high-functioning, robust application? And just deal with the additional little bit of latency between the data center and the thing because we know we're eventually going to move to a data lake. And do I need to pay for both? Um, and those are, those are conversations you end up having a lot. And so I think that's why hybrid took off so well is because it didn't require you to do this major investment of moving and moving that for stable, mature applications that don't make... It doesn't grow more revenue by moving it. Mm-hmm.
0: I think people often think though that they're not going to get any value from the migration until it's finished. Right. So we, we're not going to, we don't realize any benefits until we shut down the data center. And I, I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it.
1: Well, I mean, I think a lot of companies end up in this this bubble cost concern, right? We're like, oh, well, we have this huge cost on data center, and we have this huge cost on cloud, and now it's impacting my margin of the business. Um, and because of that, that's why they want to rush. Because they want to get out of the bubble as quickly as possible, but Again, I think this goes back to the conversation. Like, did you really need to do that? If that product is is going to go away in in three to four years, you know, three to four years on a a depreciation schedule and on a on a server health lifetime is not that bad.
0: I kind of wish there was a way you could sell excess data center capacity. You know, as you're doing a migration, as you spin things down, but you've still got a commitment in a you know colo somewhere. It would be awesome to actually like kind of build a build an on prem spot market type thing. So that you could actually, you know, get some revenue back, get some compute back, mm-hmm. and some cash back for uh, for the stuff you're not using to, to realize that before you actually shut the whole thing down. That'd be neat.
1: I would. Yeah, that's maybe not a bad idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, scratch that. Terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. <it were>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my brain's thinking now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't have anything else uh, on this
2: topic unless you guys do. Um, I did for a second, but
0: I think it's gone now. (laughs) Out of the three, though, which do you think are the most successful on average? And and I guess it depends how you define success, but, you know, VM migration is simple. You you move things from one place to another, maybe you move IP space, maybe you move some connectivity around, but it's simple and it's doable and it's achievable very quickly. Mm -hmm. I've seen plenty of failures in cloud-native migrations and in hybrid migrations. So it's, you know... Choose wisely.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen a successful VMware migration that wasn't DR, you yeah. know, like wasn't part of that. And so like it doesn't really get exercised. It goes through an evaluation and, and, you know, like a lot of places test their DR. But it's, I think that even that, like from a financial perspective and probably from a security perspective and an and operational perspective over time, I think that has its own challenges. Um, and I've never really seen anyone do it or try it. I'm always curious to find someone who's like, yep, you know, we took our entire 300 rack workload and moved it over. You know, like, like that's impressive. You
1: yeah. know, well, I mean, you can figure out real quickly that it's not cost effective <laughs> mm-hmm. when you're like, VMware, please give me a proposal to move all of my on prem 300 racks to cloud. And then I'll come back and say, well, that's going to cost you this much money. And you're like, oh, that's a lot. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> so I think that's why you don't see a lot of successful versions of that. <laughs> Uh, because the price tag is pretty hefty. But, um, I, you know, so my, my preference is actually mostly hybrid migration at this point. I, at one point in my career, naively thought cloud native was the only way to do it. <laughs> it's the way I like to do it the best, but the reality is for dealing with companies that are, you know, in some transitionary phase, like monolithic to microservices uh, or moving into, you know, more digital transformation projects, stuff like that, the hybrid gives you the best of both worlds. I gotta maintain a stable cost structure, I understand, but I get to enable new innovation and new capabilities that are cloud ready from day one. And I think ultimately that's the reason why hybrid took off in the market, too, is because of that exact reason. And so, you know, if if the monolith is gonna live on forever, then you know, maybe you wanna make the move, but you can make the move much more slowly uh, because you're still getting value out of the cloud investment. You're still getting access to things that you want, you're getting that elasticity, you're getting that burstable capacity. That's all really important. Uh, and that's one of the big reasons why you wanted cloud was for those things, right? So if I'm a retailer and I have a pretty fixed um, workload that I run most of the time, and keep that on-premise. it's a ch- I know it's cheap, but I do know at Black Friday, I need four times the capacity and I only need it for Black Friday. And then I can use this hybrid configuration to basically scale up into a cloud and burst. That's a really compelling use case and really the right optimization of, I have I have a pretty steady workload most of the year, and I have a really spiky workload this one period of time. And I'm going to take advantage of that opportunity with cloud.
0: It really, it really is, is is like a parallel to agile. I mean, sure you have these old waterfall processes, and you you don't get anything for for six months or twelve months if you're lucky, with nothing to show in the middle. And with agile, every two weeks or three weeks, you're shipping features, and you're seeing benefits from the work you put in immediately. And I guess the hybrid migration model lets you realize the benefits of cloud incrementally as you go. And a lot of it's
2: the framing, right? Like if it's, you know, you can still make investments on your on-prem workloads. You can innovate on your on-prem workloads. You can manage that more efficiently and you can still invest there. If you don't frame the thing as, Oh, we're getting out of here. So everything I dump into here, into my on-prem workloads is, is you know, waste because we're going to have to throw it away as we do these things. Like if you, if you're realistic about these things, like it's, you can actually get the best of both worlds. You'll make your on-prem workloads better by investing where it makes sense there as well great
1: well that's it for another fantastic week here in the cloud i will see you all next week all right see you later bye everybody and that is the week in cloud we'd like to thank our sponsor foghorn consulting subscribe on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod or join our slack channel go to our website thecloudpod.net for sign up instructions Uh, so uh, basically, there was an article uh, and it was written by a Stanford professor who studied organizational behavior for decades. And he says, the widespread layoffs in tech are more because of copycat behavior than necessary cost-cutting. Uh, and this is all, you know, basically, he studies organizations. He goes through this process. He said, hiring is fundamentally expensive. Paying recruiters, hunt headers, sign-on bonus, et cetera, and firing is just as expensive as that hiring process is. And this process is just nat- naturally cool. Uh, so, companies are trying to justify the layoffs due to cost cutting, but the reality is that they're not going to run out of money if they do layoff or don't lay off in most cases, which we're seeing, which is a company lays off 500 people, then they have record profits, <laughs> and their margin grew in the quarter. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting. And then, you know, it also calls out in the article the irony is that these companies a year ago were talking about how important the people are to their business and what a capital asset their people are. Uh, and now just turning around and throwing them to the curb. So, yeah, really an interesting uh, article and and take on it, and you know it does feel very much like it's everyone copying everyone else because that's what Wall Street wants, not because they feel they really have to.
0: It would be interesting. I know there's the website that tracks layoffs. It would be really interesting to look at the the difference in proportions of layoffs between publicly traded companies and privately held companies, because oh, yeah. because I think I think that just the nature of the capitalist economy. Drives a lot of these decisions because if you if you have big if you have mass investors getting on calls at the end of every quarter, and this and this particular company has just um, laid off twenty thousand staff to improve their profit margins, and this one has not. Who are you going to go with? Who's who's most likely to to have you know to bring the highest dividends or the best growth? Um, I think it's a bit of a narrow minded approach. Best growth financially doesn't necessarily mean best growth for the future. But yes, I can definitely see. I mean, when when companies post billions and billions of dollars in in profits, it's it's, uh, it's hard to take the necessity to to lay off workers.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when you hear those reports that you know it's like, oh yeah, we you know due to the, the harsh economic conditions, we're we're letting all these people go. Oh yeah, we also hired Matthew McConaughey for ten billion dollars to be our creative expert. You know, like, and it's just like. Okay, so that's just a lie,
0: <laughs> you know, Yeah, all the, all the Super Bowl ads and things like that. You yeah, just better have yeah. many million dollars on thirty-second ad.
2: <laughs> yeah, like it's just like uh, yeah, no, <laughs> this doesn't feel like a real financial decision. This feels it 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 feels like there is some other intent, right? Like it's I don't you know, and it's this would make sense to explain that.
0: Yeah, the cynic in me kind of it kind of makes me think that it's. I'm not necessarily saying there's collusion between these companies to, to drive the cost of labor down, but it's easy to see that with so many layoffs, what are we up to? A couple of hundred thousand layoffs?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I got the layoff tracker. Hold on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> easy to see that with so many layoffs, the, the demand for labor has changed and it is no longer a, an employee's market. Yeah, it's
1: uh, hundred twenty-eight thousand two hundred and two layoffs as of mm-hmm. a recording here. So,
2: well, the but the job growth numbers are still very strong, like as a nation, which is true. You know, which is interesting as well, in the U.S. Anyway,
1: yeah. Well, but I, I think that's because during the pandemic, you know, labor was impossible to get. You couldn't find people for most of the roles mm-hmm. you had open. So there was the haves and have-nots of hiring. Right, fang companies mm-hmm. hired like crazy. They were able to get people all day long, and then smaller mid-sized companies or even smaller enterprise companies, were not able to hire at the level they needed to. And so they were sitting on open recs. And so I think what you're seeing is just these people are getting laid off from Fang. And then as long as they're capable of doing the jobs, they're now all of a sudden have a job in a smaller company where they actually may have more impact. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, like a lower performer at a Fang company is not the same as a low performer at a small business.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to link to the the TikTok video I saw earlier, but I I had a very, very good rant earlier about this entire situation, about these copycat layoffs. And and how employees were sort of unfairly penalized, and they've lost their jobs because they were poorly utilized, not because they were poorly performing.
2: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. No. It's you know what was the yeah Benihoff you know talking about all the new hires being less effective you know from the pandemic and you know like it, it it makes it it makes it geared towards like the the employees' fault when really it's a business didn't really know how to how to operate during a pandemic in a remote first world. Right. And it's just like, that's not them not being able, you know, it's them not being supported or getting access to the resources they needed. It's not them being lazy and just like, Oh, I just don't watch TV all day and put my mouse on one of those auto clickers or whatever. So, you know, like it's
0: dumb. I hate it. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't help all the the things you read in the in media around. But, well, this tech person's got sixteen jobs and they they just check in like once once a week with mm-hmm. with their boss and they're making one point three million dollars a year or something. Yeah. I, th- I think that just gives people a bad image. I, you know, it's just like yeah. uh, you know every every homeless person's just looking for drugs or
2: yeah.
0: it or just wants to drink the next whatever.
2: That's yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that there is one person who had sixteen terrible bosses who who basically allowed them to get away with murder and didn't check in and, and wasn't measuring performance in any meaningful way. And then that turns into a thing that's repeated. And then the internet is a huge magnifier of that noise. And mm-hmm. and now it's like every single person who's decided to become remote has sixteen jobs and it isn't really putting in their full effort and is quiet quitting. You know, like it's like I hate. I hate all the narrative. Yeah. Quiet quitting, quiet firing, all these words. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Remember when we expected our leaders to be, you know, like generate excitement and passion and, and those mm-hmm. things. And now it's just like, no, that people suck. I'm like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's
0: you. you know?
2: <laughs> like, yeah. The, the whole, you know, it, it, this is an interesting,
1: you know, you brought up the quiet quitting thing, but the, the quiet firing, I sort of find interesting because it's it basically describes that managers fail to adequately provide coaching, support, and career development to an employee, which results in pushing the employee out of an organization. I don't know why I call that firing, as much mm-hmm. as just you know, they don't have a spot for you to move up or they don't you have a bad manager. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's really less about, you know, an intentful thing. It's it's a fact of the matter is is that you just have a bad boss. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: So you know, we had bad bosses before there was the challenge of remote work. Right. Exactly. When you had physical proximity as an advantage to, to check in on someone and
1: and your physical proximity and, forced you to be able to go to sit in your manager's office like, Hey, I need a, I need something or I need feedback, yeah. or you know, you could yeah, force yeah. those things where it's a little harder to like schedule time on someone's calendar who's booked from seven AM until six PM every day. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs>
2: like it's yeah, it's you know, we're we're having to adapt and make new ways of working and and, and that you know, is going to be a little disruptive, and I think that if anything, the pandemic and the productivity levels showed that despite all of that, we were doing an amazing job. So, you know, it's if there are individuals there that aren't performing,
0: like yeah, it's much easier. There's, there's many more excuses now. There's many more ways we can blame employees for for, for problems. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. I, it was a good article, and uh, thanks for your insights as well. But uh, see you next week. See awesome. you.